Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Today is the 12th of February, 2014, and today I am joined on the line by Eva Bartlett, an activist, a, a freelance journalist, and a volunteer for the International Solidarity Movement who has spent much of the past five years living in Gaza, testifying to the predicament of the Palestinians in their struggle against Israeli occupation. Her website is ingaza.wordpress.com, and she has just engaged on a U.S. speaking tour that will see her speaking in many different venues around the United States over the coming weeks. So uh, people who are interested can find out more information about that tour at ingaza.wordpress.com. Eva Bartlett, thank you very much for joining us on the program today. It's a pleasure, James. Thanks. Excellent. Well, this is obviously your first time on the program, the first time a lot of the listeners will be hearing about you. So I'd like to get into some of your own biographical details and how it is you came to be interested in this issue. And doing my own research, um, some of this uh, seems a bit uh, hazy to me. So perhaps you can fill in some of the the biographical blind spots. But as I understand, you were born in Michigan, but moved to Canada at a very early age and uh, became interested in the campaign for Tibet before you became interested in the Palestinian issue. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about that background before we get into Palestine specifically. Okay. Um, well, I was basically actually in your neck of the woods. I was uh, living in South Korea teaching English in after my university, uh, after finishing university. And I, I basically kind of described myself as completely ignorant <laughs> to, as, as regards to anything to do with, um, well, certainly with Tibet, Palestine, anything political. I was not a news junkie. I didn't. Um, I didn't even seek out information. But I think that uh, traveling is always a great way of educating oneself. And um, after having traveled quite a bit in Southeast Asia, I started yearning for more information. And um, through my online searches, I, I came across both Tibet and Palestine roughly at the same time. Um, and just did more and more research and became very interested in in both issues and also alarmed by the fact that I knew nothing about those issues prior to my having stumbled across this. Um, and I, you know, I, I started researching more and more and decided that since I was already in Korea, that I could pro- possibly go and see uh, Tibet, uh, which I did, and I became involved in the Tibetan movement back in North America. But as I did so, um, and especially when I was based in Washington, D.C. for about half a year, um, I was more and more appalled by not only what was happening in occupied Palestine, but my own uh, former ignorance and the ignorance of people around me. Um, but anyway, to, to make a longer story short, I basically, I came across the International Solidarity Movement, which is a group of um, people from around the world um, of various ages, various um, faiths that go to occupied Palestine to witness the worst of the atrocities of what happens under occupation. And I decided that I would at some point go talk to Palestine and, and see what was going on, <clears throat> excuse me, which I was able to do in 2007. And once you actually see it, there's no turning back. Now, tell us a little bit more about the International Solidarity Movement for those who don't know about this organization and how it's run. It began, um, it's Palestinian-led. It began in the early years of 2000. Um, it basically was a response to the what was what was going on after the second uprising or intifada um and basically people from around the world were going to occupy palestine for various reasons to witness to document because the media was not documenting what the israeli army was doing to palestinians um and also to stand in solidarity with palestinians the main uh tenets of the ism are that 
we are Palestinian-led, so it's not it's not like many big um, NGOs which go into various areas and impose their own often colonial ideas. Um, the ISM is, is Palestinian-led. We stand in solidarity with them, and in many cases, get in between the Israeli army or sometimes Israeli colonists that are trying to aggress Palestinians. So it's a means of trying to diffuse um, what can be often deadly situations and also to document and to share with the world because the media obviously doesn't do that. I mean, um, you yourself, I'm sure, are quite aware that when it comes to Palestine, there is no balance whatsoever in the media. And often stories, not often, all the time stories are, or news is overlooked. Um, on the other hand, when it comes to Israel, the any any sort of news on Israel is reported over and over again. So that's one role of the ISM is to try to fill in that gap. Now, as you mentioned, you your first trip to Palestine uh, began in May of 2007, and you spent several months there, but I understand that trip did not end in a pleasant way for you. Yeah, um, so basically... Uh, in, in the occupied West Bank, um, ISM volunteers who, as I mentioned, not only come of various faiths, but also they can be, uh, the first ISMer I met was um, in her 50s or 60s, and she was a Jewish woman from Virginia. But uh, when we're there, we, tend, we go to wherever the most difficult situations are. So there are some areas where there are, there are popular nonviolent demonstrations like Belain, which um, many people now know of because of the documentary that Anand Burnett made, um, Five Broken Cameras, which almost won an Oscar, should have, uh, certainly. Um, so in Belém, there are demonstrations in which people walk on, on their own land and they simply call for um, Israel to stop annexing their land and they're nonviolent demonstrators and they're fired upon deadly um, with tear gas and live bullets and thinly coated rubber um, uh, steel bullets. Um, in other areas, we would see uh, Israeli army invasions of cities, and when they invade, basically they lock down the cities, and um, anybody on the streets, if they're Palestinian, risk either being abducted or being shot or, or um, killed. So we would walk with them, try to escort them to their homes, and try to bring them food or medicines. In other areas, we would be present where there was um, illegal colonists who would aggress Palestinians. So I did this for about eight months. Um, many people maybe don't know that if you want to enter the occupied West Bank, you do so via Israeli border control. So it's not a matter of simply saying, I want to go to, to occupied Palestine. You have to actually get Israeli permission. So if you show any sort of inclination of standing in solidarity with Palestinians, then more often than not, you won't actually be able to enter, period. Um, fortunately, I was able to enter and I, I got a three-month visa. And then I was able to get a second three-month visa. But when I went back for my third attempt to get a three-month visa, um, the Israeli authorities told me I had a week to get out. Um, I suspect the reason was that I had been arrested and detained a number of times in the interim. So I, I decided that I would just stay on because most likely I wouldn't get back in. So I was able to stay for another two months, but finally was um, deported back to Canada. But I mean, this is... I. I, I I'm certainly not ashamed of that because um, it, this is Palestinian land and this is the Israeli occupier who's deciding who can enter and who can leave. And furthermore, it's not simply for foreigners, you know, who are being uh, deported, but it's Palestinians, Palestinian refugees who can't even get back to their homeland. So it's, it's definitely one of many critical issues regarding um, Israel's occupation of Palestine. 
Well, I, I think this shows the the the, the absolutely in, almost insane way that this entire uh, situation is treated. As you say, that the uh, the access being guarded by the Israelis, who can really deny anyone who has any inclination of standing with the Palestinians, obviously puts the Palestinians at a disadvantage from the, the very beginning in terms of what can even who can even enter. So I understand that you you did finally make it back to Palestine in 2008 as part of the uh, the Free Gaza flotilla. Um, tell us about that experience. Yeah, so while I was in um, the Occupied West Bank in 2007, I met some of the, who would be the founders of the Free Gaza Movement. Uh, and so they basically came up with the idea, and they were very creative people. I mean, they basically said, Gaza is under Israeli occupation, even though the Israelis pulled out their roughly 8,000 occupiers, their um, colonists. In 2005, the, the Israelis still control Gaza's airspace, their land borders, their water. So Gaza is still effectively occupied. Uh, so this group, Free Gaza, decided, well, we're going to challenge the occupation because um, after Hamas was elected, under elections that were supervised by uh, in, in, international you know, people, and they were democratically elected. Whatever you happen to think of Hamas, they were democratically elected. Um, but ra- rather immediately after that, uh, the Israelis and, and Canada and America and many um, countries basically enforced a siege on Gaza. So not only do Palestinians need to ask the Israelis for permission, which they are usually not granted, to exit or enter Gaza, but, but the borders are locked down to everything, including commodities and trade. So Free Gaza said, we're going to challenge this. Um, under the Oslo Accords, Palestinians have the right to access 20 nautical miles of their water, and then it becomes international waters. So Palestinians should have the right to actually use their waters uh, for movement. So they decided to sail from Cyprus to Gaza and did so successfully in, I believe it was August 2008. Um, and since I had met them and was in contact with them and had been trying to, to enter Gaza via Egypt, which was impossible under the Mubarak regime, um, they they welcomed me on their boat and I sailed in November 2008. And interestingly, I was with a delegation of European MPs, um, including a few people from um, the House of Lords, and also with Amir Haas, who's an amazing Israeli journalist that lives in Ramallah. So we arrived in early November, and after that, there were two more boats that successfully arrived from Cyprus to Gaza. And following that, any boats that attempted to sail to Gaza were violently prevented, um, including ramming boats. Then this evolved into the Freedom Flotilla, which in 2010 attempted to sail to Gaza. There were, I believe, six boats. Um, including one very large vessel, the Mavi Marmara, which was a Turkish ship. And the Israelis not only prevented them from accessing um, Gazan waters, but they, in inter- international waters, they actually airdropped onto Mavi Marmara um, with elite Israeli commandos, and they airdropped firing on the people on board, and they killed nine people in total and injured tens of people. Absolutely, and, uh, and for people who don't know about that uh, that incident or its diplomatic fallout, uh, even uh, then they should really check uh, into that incident. Obviously, a, a huge 
um, point in all of this. Well, you've you've spent several years um, now uh, being in Gaza and 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 visiting with with the people in Palestine and, and witnessing the the things that they're li- uh, going through on a daily basis. And I know it's uh, it's uh, obviously you've had so many experiences with so many varied um, people. And um, on your website, for example, you highlight the works of Palestinian artists in Gaza, Palestinian women, um, videos of, of farmers in the region and uh, fishermen and and the like. So obviously, too many. Experiences experiences to possibly condense, but perhaps you can share some of the, 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 the stories of some of the people that you've met and, uh, and the ways that they, uh, they managed to survive and, 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 and somehow cope with the, this situation under just in, in almost in unimaginable circumstances for most people living in the comfortable West. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the artists and, and musicians. Um, I, I do try to highlight the human side because I think that not only are Palestinians dehumanized by their aggressors and occupiers, both by um, Israel and Egypt, who, by the way, are complicit, Egypt is complicit in the siege on Gaza, but um, by the media. I mean, if you hear about Palestinians, particularly Palestinians in Gaza at all, uh, in corporate media, it tends to be um, obviously a very negative uh, stereotype. So I do try to highlight that there are educated and, and creative and uh, talented and highly intelligent um, and inventive people in Gaza. And they, li- they are living under the worst circumstances one can imagine. I mean, even the UN has said, finally, that um, Gaza by 2020 will be an unlivable place. But by most standards, as you, you know, say in the comfortable West, nobody could endure what Palestinians endure in Gaza. They, they live under rolling power outages. At best, they have four or five hours of electricity per day. Um, and this is a situation that's been ongoing for years and years and years and years, and it's a situation that's entirely preventable. Um, so, I mean, I, in, when I was there, uh, our work with the ISM in comp- um, sorry, entailed accompanying farmers. Um, so th- this is where it gets bizarre if you're the average person that has no idea what goes on in Gaza. Why would you need to walk with farmers? Why would you need to be present while they try to access their land? I mean, farming is just a very simple act, right? Well, it's not because the Israelis impose um, a restricted area. They call it a no-go zone or a buffer zone. And they say, in theory, they say it's 300 meters from the border between Gaza and Israel. But in all reality, it, it extends up to two kilometers in some areas, and it basically deprives Palestinian of one-third of their farmland. So not only is it an area that they cannot enter, but this this limitation is enforced by lethal means. So the reason why we would walk with farmers is because when they access their land, they're shot at, they're shelled, they're abducted, and their land is destroyed. So we go with them, we would go with them to document what's happening, and also in the hopes that this day they could plant their crops or harvest their crops, this day they could be on their land and feel like it wasn't being stolen from them. But it's it's an ongoing um, and very um, insidious issue because it's part of Israel's policy of annexing more and more land. That was one aspect of, of things that we did in Gaza. Another aspect was doing the same accompaniment with fishers because they also come under Israeli Navy fire and shelling. Um, and with the situation with fishers, in some respects, it's even more lethal because the machine gun fire is quite heavy and... Um, the Israeli Navy uh, certainly doesn't have anybody policing them, so they they have no seemingly moral qualms about attacking Palestinian fishers. Often, also, they will abduct fishers and take them to Israel, interrogate them, steal their boats, and eventually release the fishers but keep the boats. So I guess 
to come back to your question, you were asking about experiences in Gaza. It, um, Gaza is under fire in so many ways. And again, if people hear about Gaza and just in the, you know, six o'clock news, it might be because Israel's attacking. Of course, there will be no context and it will be um, flipped as though Gaza was attacking Israel. But Gaza suffers under so many uh, aspects that even aside from the farmers and the fishers and the electricity, then there's a water crisis. There's the water is 95% undrinkable. There's a sanitation crisis where in during times of heavy rains, you have sewage pools overflowing into the streets and people wading through the sewage as happened in December. Um, so, and then aside from all of that, of course, there are the random Israeli uh, bombings of Gaza and then the full on wars on Gaza. Um, so, during my years there, I saw all of this and much more. It's, it is hard to summarize, but um, I also met many wonderful people, very uh, full of love and wicked senses of humor. So um, I'm not sure if I really answered your question. It's, uh, it's well, it's that was uh, yeah, no, around. but that was a very thorough um, answer, and and I do uh, appreciate again that, that you've had so many experiences that it would be difficult to encapsulate just just one or two of them. But um, but uh, again, I think that gives the scope of what people are dealing with on the everyday basis there, and it does go towards humanizing the Palestinian people, who, as you say, have been so completely effaced in the Western media to the point where they are really, I mean, if if anything, just portrayed as as uh, some sort of ominous threat to Israel and and nothing else. Um, Again, there's there's much to talk about here, but one question that I have is that now that you've spent uh, seven years off and on in in Palestine, how how has the situation changed there, or or is it more or less the same as when you first went there? Um, with regards to Gaza, it's, it's gotten worse, obviously, because it, Gaza is still under siege. Um, Israel doesn't allow any exports out, so you know the poverty levels our unemployment is about 40%. This has been steadily increasing over the years. Uh, food aid dependence is at 80%, and food aid itself is just flour, water, and oil, or sorry, flour, oil, and sugar, roughly. Um, so what has changed is that it's getting worse and worse, and so that's not in itself a change. It's just um, Gaza is getting worse. Um, the West Bank and Jerusalem is uh, getting worse as well because the the occupied um, the settlements or what I call the colonies are um, expanding and of course John Kerry is trying to force peace talks um, and Palestinians really have no choice. I mean, they if they don't uh, accept uh, negotiations, then they're called unwilling partners in peace and they're you know um, slandered. And if they do, then the Israelis say, well yeah, we're still going to expand our colonies. And then they blatantly announce this whenever there's meetings. And so in the West Bank, um, in Jerusalem, things are getting worse. There are 5,000 political prisoners. Homes are destroyed all the time by the Israeli army. And in many cases, the army basically hands a Palestinian family, for example, in Jerusalem, a notice and says, destroy your own home. And the family does, because if they don't, then they have to pay the expense of the Israeli army for demolishing their home. And the reasons for demolishing homes, of course, are false pretexts of not having proper building permits or some sort of crazy uh, pretext like that. Um, so things are not improving. Uh, there's, it's, uh, it is a very dire situation. And in terms of Gaza, it's basically fallen out of the spotlight. Not that it ever was fully in the spotlight, but um, basically the people in Gaza 
this is all manufactured. Their poverty is manufactured. The uh, water crisis could be slowly changed. It will take a lot of work uh, because the aquifer is, is almost depleted and um, overextracted, and the, the seawater is seeping into the aquifer. Um, but the electricity crisis certainly could be reversed and could be reversed immediately. It's a matter of the Israelis allowing construction materials into Gaza, allowing them to expand their um, or to repair their, their power plant um, and to bring enough industrial diesel to fuel the power plant. And this would change things immensely because with, with an electricity crisis, it's not only that it affects you on the personal level, and it's, it's bad because when you have four to six hours of, of power a day, I don't think many people here in the West could imagine how that affects you. I mean, every time we have a, a slight winter storm or for whatever reason have a power outage, people go insane. But in Gaza, they deal with this on a daily basis. And there are some days where there's no power at all. Um, but it, again, this is preventable. And when there's no power, not only does it affect you on the personal level, but obviously it's affecting things like hospital function, whether or not they can um, operating rooms can run or the pumping of water to homes or even because of the sewage crisis, the pumping of sewage into the sea. And then when, when the power is out and the sewage can't be pumped into the sea, that means that if given enough time, the sewage will accumulate in the sewage holding pools and eventually overflow into the streets. So the poverty could be also improved, the poverty levels, I mean, if the borders were open, if the fruits and the clothing and the textiles and the, and the furniture that was formerly exported was allowed to be exported again, this would vastly improve um, the, the level of unemployment and poverty in Gaza. And if Palestinians had freedom of movement, if they were able to leave their, what many people describe as an open-air prison or the world's largest ghetto, if they were able to leave Gaza for the various reasons, for medical care, for work, for study, or even for the freedom of the simple joy of, of traveling and, and visiting other places or seeing family, this would vastly improve their quality of life. But you ask what has changed, and the fact is things have only gotten worse. There is no change. There's no happy story here. Well, this is obviously the type of situation that can only be allowed to continue because of the ignorance of people generally on this issue. And if they were better informed about it, there would certainly be more people who would be uh, outraged at what's happening there, which is why I think that uh, the speaking tour that you're engaged on right now is one important part of that process of informing people about this. And as I mentioned at the top of this interview, your uh, itinerary is up there on the front page of ingaza.wordpress.com that will be linked in the show notes for this interview so people can go there to see where and when you'll be speaking. Speaking. But tell us a little bit about this uh, speaking tour and what it is you hope to accomplish. Well, I've done a number of talks um, throughout Canada and, and the U.S. over the past few years. Um, and in, usually it's been that somebody's asked me to come and talk about Gaza. Before I was talking about um, the West Bank, but I think that there are enough people that are able to get into the West Bank, even though it is difficult, um, and Jerusalem. And in all of occupied Palestine, but with Gaza, it's so very difficult to get there. And I have spent a significant amount of time there that um, I do kind of prioritize focusing on Gaza. Um, so in the past, I've done talks um, where I've done, you know, small talks in churches or at, at a, in a university class or um, at my old high school. But it's been small and it's often been um, addressing people who are already well informed um, and I'm really this time trying to reach out. I'm, I'm actually organizing the tour and it's been insane trying to try. I'm sure you've experienced this yourself, but it's been very challenging trying to coordinate um, 
this organizing, but I'm I'm trying to find venues to reach out to people who were like me, who, you know, I eight years ago was a blank page, but I wasn't um, resistant to knowing. I just didn't know. So I'm trying to reach out to people who would be interested and would be sympathetic or compassionate or would want to actually stand in solidarity with Palestinians or want to challenge uh, the U.S. government for its $3 billion plus dollars of um, aid to Israel every year. So it's uh, basically that's, that's what I hope to do is to share um, the human side of Gaza to let people know what's going on on a daily basis. It's not just about the massacres that Israel wages on Gaza, but it's also the daily genocidal um, policies Israel imposes on Gaza that is really largely not talked about. And basically I show um, a number of photos, mostly my own, and a few short video clips and give people a kind of hands-on experience what life is like in Gaza. And I would hope that, again, that more people that who are not informed would come out and would then, you know, if they see that, more often than not, people say they had no idea and they're appalled by what's going on. And they they get inspired to do something, although it is a very depressing subject. But I don't think if you can, if you can relate to the people of Gaza, the Palestinians there, I don't think you can just see it and then say, okay, well, I'm going to turn it off like the six o'clock news. I think that if you see it, then ideally you become motivated and you, you join a solidarity group or you take some sort of action because in the end, while we're not, you know, nobody is going to save Gaza and, and Palestinians in Gaza don't want to be saved or to be helped. What they want is justice and they want, you know, open borders and they, they can't achieve this all on their own. They're, they're very strong, resilient, intelligent, brilliant people, but we are a part of the equation. We, you know, our tax money, the U.S. tax money goes to Israel. My own uh, prime minister is a very large um, supporter of Israel, no matter what Israel does to Gaza. So, again, what I'm hoping to do is just to share what I've seen, which many people don't have the chance to see or know about, um, and thereby hopefully ignite some sort of flame in people to, uh, to, to share that information and take action. Well, as, as you note in a Palestine Telegraph article from 2010, you're quoted as saying, uh, my coworkers at the Campaign for Tibet couldn't see the parallels with Palestine. Many of them were Zionists and refused to acknowledge what their beloved Israel was doing to an entire people. So as you say, there are, of course, those people who are ignorant of what's happening and for that reason are not uh, inclined to help or, or to, uh, to, to be interested in the situation. But unfortunately, there are also people who are ideologically opposed um, to, to supporting Palestine and the, the plight of the Palestinian people. Um, Obviously, this is a subject that, that does touch on some very raw nerves of a lot of people. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, the kinds of reactions that you've had to your to your uh, talks before. Uh, thus far, actually, I haven't had uh, that many Zionist or hugely pro-Israel um, people come to my talks. I did have uh, a young man in a university in Canada, um, in London, Ontario, challenge me or, or ask a question basically saying, you know, you um, you say that Israel should open the borders and allow freedom of movement in Gaza, but how can we, if we did that, how can we guarantee Israel's security? And I just, and he said it in a very polite way. And just to note that I think the, the tactics the Zionists are using when they attend some sort of discourse on Palestine are changing because um, in the past, I believe that they were a lot more aggressive and in his case he was quite polite and I answered him also politely just saying well I think that 
your question needs to be looked at at a different angle. I think the question is not how can we guarantee Israel's security, but um, with Gaza being locked down by Israel and with Israel having one of the, um, in that region, one of the strongest armies in the world, or in that region, I'm sorry, and having, you know, all these war machines, the F-16s, the tanks, the drones, which can bomb with precision, the warships, um, with Israel having all of that and the ability to bomb Gaza at any point, how can we guarantee Palestinian security? Um, and he didn't have an answer. In another presentation, there a man walked out about five minutes before I was done, and somebody asked if he could ask a question. I just said, well, if he is willing to stay another five minutes, he can ask uh, his question like anybody else. And he basically replied he had had enough propaganda. Um, and I didn't need to reply to him because the audience actually said, you know, basically, you're an idiot. This isn't propaganda. This is real. So for the most part, I've been fortunate in that um, people have seen what I've presented and been moved by it and, and not said things like this is propaganda. But um, I don't know, you know, it, it can happen. Um, and if it happens, that's fine. It's freedom of opinion. But I think that the the photos and my, you know, narration or my anecdotes speak for themselves. And it's really hard to say that this is just propaganda. When you see farmers being shot at, it's pretty clear what's going on. You see a, a field which is basically devoid of any sort of large trees because the Israelis have raised those trees. And you see a group of farmers standing there harvesting parsley or lentils or whatever. And then suddenly they're being shot at, like within meters of their persons. It's pretty clear what's going on. And it's it's hard to say um, that, oh, you know, you don't need to say give any historical context, even in that sense, you just need to look at it and say, there's an aggressor, there's somebody being aggressed. So to answer your question, I haven't had um, a number of bad reactions, but the fact is when you do discuss Palestine, often you will be called an anti-Semite or a Jew hater or anything like that. And I just reply, okay, first of all, Arabs are Semitic, Semitic people. Second of all, this has nothing to do with Judaism. This is about the Zionist movement, which is a political movement, which is um, also a genocidal movement. So, you know, you you will be slandered, but if you don't, uh, if you aren't slandered, it probably means you're not talking about the truth. <laughs> well, there you go. There's an old saying about uh, getting flack when you're over the target, and uh, and that would certainly be the case in this issue. As I say, it is obviously an issue that's still very sensitive and and should not be. It should be one that is more broadly known. So I. I Definitely salute people like yourself who are trying to get the story of the Palestinians out to more people. And as I say, you will be engaging on this uh, speaking tour, hitting uh, Pennsylvania and Virginia, Washington, New York, Boston, many other places. So again, people should be taking a look at your website for more information on this speaking tour. Eva Bartlett, it was great, great to get to know you today, and hopefully we can have you back on in the future to continue talking about some of your experiences and, uh, and see how things develop from here. So thank you once again for taking the time to talk to us today. You're very welcome, James. Thanks so much for contacting me.